0: Last week, we left Job covered in sores, scratching himself with a bit of broken pottery, sitting in an ash heap. He's lost everything but his wife, and they are not on good terms at the moment. Three of his friends have arrived to comfort him, but when they see him and the devastation that has befallen him, they realize that there is nothing they can do or say to bring Job any comfort. And so they sit near him, saying nothing at all. In chapter 3 of the book of Job, where, which is where we find ourselves this morning, Job begins his response to the events of that fateful day on which his life was destroyed. Job begins to ask the question that many of us would be asking if we were to find ourselves in his shoes. Job begins to ask the question, why? But where many of us may continue that question with, why did this happen? Job continues the question by asking, Why was I even born if this is the life that I was born to live? Chapter 3 is the hardest and darkest chapter in the book of Job, for it shows the heart of a man who has lost everything and is being open and honest about the darkness that has invaded his life and his heart. This isn't an easy text, this isn't an easy passage of Scripture, but it is a necessary journey. There are truths about suffering that God wants to make clear, and so we continue our series this morning with the darkest chapter in the book. Last week, we saw the loneliness of Job sitting on his ash heap, experiencing a suffering that we cannot imagine, and doing so alone. This week, let us listen to the loneliness of Job. We're going to pick up in Job chapter 3. We'll read verse 20 to 26. Job 3, 20 to 26, we read the word of the Lord. Why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter soul? To those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than for hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave. Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For sighing has become my daily food. My groans pour out like water. What I fear has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. I sense the reading, let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would... Perform the miracle that feeds our souls. Praise pray this in your name. Amen. William Cooper, born November 26, 1731, was an English poet. Cooper's life was anything but easy. He was one of seven children, but only he and his younger brother John survived past infancy. He was six when John was born, and so he was six. When he lost his mother in childbirth, William's father sent him to a boarding school when he was of age, and there he was bullied so mercilessly that it is uncertain if he ever recovered his right mind. Later, after a two year engagement, his fiance's father forbade their marriage, and so it was called off. William suffered repeated episodes of deep depressive illness. I was struck, he wrote. With such a dejection of spirits as none but they who have felt the same can have the least conception of. Day and night I was upon the rack, lying down in horror and rising up in despair. At age 31, Cooper suffered a catastrophic psychotic breakdown. He tried three times to take his own life and was committed to an asylum, or as we call it today, a psychiatric hospital. The hospital was run by an evangelical Christian, and it was there, six months later, that William Cooper met the Lord Jesus Christ, was given faith, and became a disciple. Describing his conversion, he wrote, Unless the almighty arm had been under me, I think I should have died with gratitude and joy. My eyes filled with tears and my voice choked with transport. I could only look up to heaven in silent fear, overwhelmed with wonder and love. After his conversion, Cooper went on to write some great hymns of the Christian faith. He became good friends with John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, and with Newton joined the abolitionist campaign for which he wrote a few poems, poems that were often quoted by Martin Luther King Jr. during the 20th century civil rights movement. And if the story of William Cooper ended there, we would think, wow, look at how this man's faith saved him, brought him out of his despair, put an end to the psychotic breaks, and delivered him from the disease of depression. We like those kinds of endings. But that's not the, how the story of William Cooper ended. Though he did not abandon his faith, he still struggled, still suffered mightily with depression. Shortly he died. Shortly before he died of Dropsy in 1800, one of the last things that he said was, I feel unutterable despair. I feel unutterable despair. How can this be? Isn't God a God of hope, a God of love, a God of promise, a God that has great plans for us, plans to prosper us, not to harm us, plans to give us a hope and a future, as we read in the often quoted Jeremiah 29, 11. And all this is true. I mean, these are elements of God. This is a promise of God. But what is also true is that we often mistake eternal promises for temporal promises. What I mean by that is we consistently want things that are promised for heaven to exist in our lives today. We want to believe that the protection of heaven, the joys of eternity, the absence of pain, and the banishment of sorrow, we want that to be true for us today. We want to believe that since God is a God of love, that he will treat us in the way that we want to be treated. And so we expect the promised joys of heaven to be part of the promised life here on earth. We want the eternal to be temporal. But as anyone who has watched a loved one die of cancer, as anyone who has fought or is fighting the overwhelming battle with depression, as anyone who has been the victim of abuse, as anyone who has lost a child, as anyone who has suffered a loss that I haven't listed in this admittedly very incomplete list, but as as William Cooper and as Job can tell you, the eternal is not temporal. God keeps his promises. And the hope that we have for heaven, the promises that have been made about heaven, will be realized. That will happen. And we can rejoice in that. Someday suffering will end and pain will be no more. But today is not that day. No, today we sit in the reality that our world is still broken. That suffering is an ever-present companion And that even believers go through blank despair and utter depression. Often when I've heard the story of Job, people tend to skip over chapter 3. If we stick to chapters 1 and 2, and then then the resolution that we have at the end, we read about how Job responded to the horrible things that happened to him, right? In Job chapter 1, verse 21, after all of his wealth has been taken or destroyed and he has lost All of his children, Job famously says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we think, wow, what a response. Because it is. That's an amazing response of faith. And then in Job chapter 2 verse 10, after Job has been afflicted with boils and his wife tells him to curse God and die, Job responds to her by saying, shall we receive good from God and not evil? Again, another response that kind of rocks us, right? I mean, that flies in the face of our Western way of thinking. And we go, man, what a fantastic man of God. What a fantastic man of faith that he is able to handle these rough areas of life so humbly and so gracefully. And while this is all true, this is how Job responded And these are amazing responses. If we just focus on Job 1.21 and Job 2.10, then we run into the danger of making Job's faith two-dimensional. He suffered and he trusted. And then the easy follow-up is, and so should we. End of story. But the reality is that that is far from the end of the story. For here in chapter 3 we find Job... Suffering, And in his suffering, he is cursing his birth and he is longing for death. Now, again, he's not losing his faith as he works through these emotions, as he works through this devastating time. He's not walking away from his faith. He's dealing with his suffering and responding to the hurt in, in, in the ways that he knows how. And it's important to remember that Job chapter 3 is the authentic experience of a man affirmed by God at the start of the book and affirmed by God again at the end of it. This struggle with despair does not cause him to be any less loved by God, any less affirmed by God. And often that's how we are tempted to look at it, isn't it? That these things have happened to us because we did enough things wrong that God's love ran out. This tragedy has befallen us because God no longer loves us. This is a lie from Satan, from the adversary, from the sifter of the wheat. Do not believe it. I ask you the question: Does, does God love the child born with Down syndrome less than he loves the child born with a chromo, less than the child born without a chromosomal difficulty? Of course, he doesn't. And though the elements of life will be harder for one than they are for other, that's not a reflection of God's favoritism. He loves each of us the same. Another question. When my little girl passed away last year, when she never made it to full term, and and we never got to hold her, change her diaper, or hear her laugh, was that because God loved her less? Was that because God loved Karen and I, the boys, and our family, and you by extension, as our church family, less than others who had healthy babies? We were all deprived of the joy that little Ava would have brought into our lives. Do we believe that God loved her less and loved us less by letting her be afflicted, afflicted in the way that she was afflicted and by taking Ava when he did? No. No, Ava's life and struggles are not a reflection of God's love and favor for her or for us. God loves her as much as he loves the adorable little baby Luke over there in the nursery. And he loves us as much as he loves the families and churches of babies who live and prosper and are healthy. So if we affirm this, if we believe this to be true, that our circumstances do not reflect God's love for us, then we can rest firmly in the truth that God does not love the sufferer less than those who are not currently suffering. And I say not currently suffering because we each take our turns being sifted. And yet, even though we know God's love for us will hold forever strong, there is still the reality of our suffering. Job's cry of lament extends beyond his individual experience to the common experience of undeserved sufferings by the godly throughout the world. At the end of Job 3, we leave Job terribly alone, sitting with friends who want to comfort him but have nothing to say. We leave him able only to look back with bitter regrets that he never lived, or that he ever lived, mired in deep darkness. Is there anything that can be said to him? Is there anything that can be said to our friend, our neighbor, our family member, who is suffering in ways that our dim words of comfort cannot begin to illuminate? There is. For as we look back at Job 2, 11 through 13, and we see Job's loneliness, we realize that Job's loneliness is a foreshadowing of a greater loneliness, the loneliness of a man in a garden, his friends asleep around him, though he was desperate for comfort. Jesus, in the garden of Gethsemane, facing betrayal and abuse and death, longing for the comfort of his friends, but being wrapped instead by loneliness. And so Job's darkness likewise foreshadows a deeper darkness, 2,000 years ago, another blameless believer was in deep darkness hanging on a cross at midday. Deeper than the darkness of night. Deeper even than Job's darkness. And from his lips came the cry of lonely abandonment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so Job's darkness of soul foreshadows the darkness of the cross. And so our darkness of soul reflects back the darkness of the cross on that cross jesus was intimately aware of the dark places that we dwell he was intimately aware of all of our sin the depression and the pain and the hurt that would mar our lives he went through all that we will go through and he was separated from god while he bore this incredible burden On the cross, Jesus suffered with the sufferer. On the cross, Jesus suffered for the sufferer. And in that, we have hope. For the darkness of the cross was defeated by the light of the resurrection. The darkness and the pain and the sin and the shame that Jesus bore to the cross, our darkness and pain and sin and shame was all paid for when he died and then defeated forever when he rose again. And so in Christ, our hope is secure. In Christ, we are, as Paul writes in Romans eight thirty-seven, more than conquerors. And really, that passage is so relevant to the story of Job in our text this morning. You see, often when we Or when I hear that verse quoted, it it starts there in verse 37. But to get a more accurate context, we need to back up to verse 36. Even verse 35. Let's pick up in 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In all what things are we more than conquerors? In tribulation, in distress, in persecution, in famine, in nakedness, in danger, under the threat of death, and then we get the quote from Psalm 44, 22, where the sons of Korah are crying out to God about how it feels like God has abandoned them. Their enemies prosper. The bad things keep happening to God's people, to the Israelites. How could he let this happen? Where are the answers to the promises? Why is there suffering? And in all these things, In all this pain and all this hardship and all of this earthly suffering, Paul writes that we are more than conquerors because of the love of Christ. Not that we would conquer them. But that as we go through them, we are conquerors. For it all points back to the cross. It all points back to Jesus. It all points back to him who has loved us. And how he has done the conquering. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all the creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In all these things we are more than conquerors because of the love of Christ because of Christ on the cross, because of the God who became man so that we could be tempted, so that that he could be tempted as we are tempted and would suffer as we are suffer, so that he would know intimately the feelings of loss and pain and hurt that we go through. And then he would conquer the reason for them. So that one day, one glorious day, we will wake up, rise up in a world where they no longer exist. So that one day, those who believe in him would rise again. So that one day, those who believe in him will live in a day when suffering is no more. Would live in a day when the pain and the struggle and the suffering of this earth will have fallen away, forgotten forever. And though this promise is not for this temporal place, this world we live in now, it is the glorious promise for an eternal place, one that will last forever. And it is a promise in which we can rest, for it is a promise that has already been secured. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty. Amen.